Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, dedicated to being in right relationship with one another and with ourselves and with the planet. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. In the spirit of that heritage, if you have comments on the platform in which you are watching, let us greet the divine in one another from the divine within ourselves in the comments. And if you're watching from far away, just tell us where you're coming from. I invite you now to say the chalice lighting words with me if you are moved to do so. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our reading today comes to us from His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, out of the book The Dalai Lama, A Policy of Kindness. This is my simple religion. There is no need for temples, no need for complicated philosophy. Our own brain, our own heart is our temple. The philosophy is kindness. This congregation wrote a mission statement to guide its decisions as it moves into the future. We're proud of it, and we use it, and we wrote it on the wall of our sanctuary, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. If you want to know what we mean by the beloved community, go to the uh, King Center website and look up their definition of the beloved community. That's what we mean. It's way bigger than just our beloved community of souls here at this church. Also, every week we have a moment for beloved community where we study something or learn about something we may not have known about. And today I'd like to talk to you about the wealth gap between black folks and white folks. So this wealth gap was a long, long time in the making from 1619 until very recently, uh, let's just say it, it's still going on. I want to talk about Levittown. After the war, World War II, a man named Mr. Levitt bought up lots of potato fields in Long Island and built tract after tract after tract of houses that were affordable for the GIs and their families returning from the war. The only problem was we had lots of black GIs too, but they were not eligible to buy a house in Levittown, an affordable little house where they could build their families. There was a racial clause, I mean right out there in plain sight, in the contract for buying a new house in Levittown, that you could not buy the house if you were not a Caucasian person. Now, if you were a Caucasian person who had bought a house and were selling it on, you could sell to a black family, which did happen. You can imagine the result. Protests 
crowds, stones being thrown through that black family's windows, a cross being burned on their yard. I mean, it was ugly, ugly, ugly trying to drive them out. And that racial clause was in there for many, 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 many years. I think it was 1968 when they made it illegal to put a racial clause in your house contract. It's just so obvious that white families, and we're talking about white supremacy culture here, culture that is built so that the white people come out on top, so that white families could build wealth because your grandmother and grandfather sell their house, pass the money on to your dad and mom. Your dad and mom sell their house, pass the money on to you. I know this is oversimplified. But really, if you don't have a house, if you rent your entire life, you don't have anything to pass on to your children in terms of house wealth, land wealth. And so many more white people have house wealth and land wealth to pass on to their children generation after generation after generation. It partially explains this terrible wealth gap. We'll learn more about it later. Good morning. Tomorrow night is the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish holiday celebrating a new year. During Rosh Hashanah, people look back on the past year and think about what they have done well, what they could have done better, if there are people they need to say sorry to, if there are things that they did that they need to fix. In today's story, God asks all of the creatures of the world if they were the best they could be this year. But the best for each animal is different. The ant isn't expected to do the same things as the elephant. If you don't like the word God, you can think about the earth asking you if you did the best you could do this past year, or your community. What does your community need from you, or the earth, or even your own heart? Today is the Birthday of the World by Linda Heller, illustrated by Allison J. Today is the Birthday of the World. Today, all of God's creatures pass before God, and God asks, This year, little giraffe, my dear little giraffe, did you eat the highest leaves on the tree, happy that I'd chosen you to make a path for the sun? This year, little giraffe, my dear little giraffe, were you the best little giraffe that you could be? This year, little elephant, my dear little elephant, did you move the downed tree? Happy that I'd chosen you to keep the road clear. This year, little elephant, my dear little elephant, were you the best little elephant that you could be? This year, little beaver, my dear little beaver, did you build a strong dam? Happy that I'd chosen you to widen the pond. This year, little beaver, my dear little beaver, were you the best little beaver that you could be? This year, little fish, my dear little fish, as you swam, did you glow, happy that I'd chosen you to light the dark ocean? This year, little fish, my dear little fish, were you the best little fish that you could be? This year, little bee, my dear little bee, did you fly from flower to flower, happy that I'd chosen you to spread their pollen? This year, little bee, my dear little bee, were you the best little bee that you could be? This year, little worm, my dear little worm, did you tunnel about? Happy that I'd chosen you to bring rain underground. 
This year, little worm, my dear little worm, were you the best little worm that you could be? This year, little cow, my dear little cow, did you eat the sweet grass, happy that I'd chosen you to bring joy to the fields? This year, little cow, my dear little cow, were you the best little cow that you could be? This year, little child, my dear little child, did you put seeds in the soil, happy that I'd chosen you to plant a garden? Did you paint a big picture and help to hang it, happy that I'd chosen you to add beauty to the world? Did you share your toys, happy that I'd chosen you to be kind to others? Did you laugh and have fun, happy that I'd chosen you to lift the world's spirit? This year, little child, my dear little child, were you the best little child that you could be? God waited for their answers. Yes, everyone said. They had been the best little giraffe and little elephant and little beaver and little fish and little bee and little worm and little cow and little child that they could be. Good, God said. Happy that God's creatures had made a path for the sun and moved the tree from the road and widened the pond and lit the dark ocean and spread the pollen and brought rain to the roots and eaten the grass and planted a garden and made a beautiful painting and shared the toys and lifted the world's spirit. I'm very proud of my dear little helpers because when you are the best that you can be, then the world is the best place that it can be and there is no better birthday present. From historian, author, professor, playwright, and activist Howard Zinn. I'm worried that students will take their obedient place in society and look to become successful cogs in the wheel. Let the will spin them around as it wants without taking a look at what they're doing. I'm concerned that students not become passive acceptors of the official doctrine that's handed down to them from the White House, the media, textbooks, teachers, and preachers. Let there now be a time for us to enter into an attitude of prayer and meditation together. As much quiet as we can get in the place where we find ourselves. Let us dive into it. And think. Or don't think. Breathe. Count your breaths or pray a prayer. This is the place where we speak or listen to God as we understand God or where we just listen to our inner wisdom. Please enter with me into what Ralph Waldo Emerson, our forebear, called the wise silence. You are invited as we continue in an attitude of meditation to light candles of joy or sorrow, hope or remembrance.
We've been talking about the eightfold path of Buddhism. It's not a path with steps that you do one after the other. It's a braided path, things that you move in and out of or try to do all at the same time. And they're not practices that have a lot of finger shaking in them. There's not a lot of judgment in them. There's just noticing. Just notice whether doing these things increases your sense of freedom and happiness. That's what we're trying to do. Increase our sense of freedom and happiness. So, noticing, not judging. Right now, this is Labor Day weekend, and so we're talking about right livelihood, which is one of the eightfold path steps or braids. Um, When you think about work, your work that you do, you have work at home and you have volunteer work and you have work that you do for fun and sometimes you have work that you do for money you notice which kinds of work bring you joy and peace and happiness and which kinds of work bring you turbulence and pain now also you notice the way that your work brings joy to the planet. So sometimes your work brings you some turbulence and stress, but it brings joy to other people. So you have to notice that too. So whether you work in an office or whether you work at home, whether you work in a store or on a farm or in a plant, the Buddha has asked us to refrain from doing the kinds of work that cause harm to ourselves or others or to the planet. He came from a vegetarian culture, and so he said working at a slaughterhouse, for example, was part of what was not a right livelihood. We might have an interesting and in-depth discussion about that, Uh, but not today. Being an arms dealer is a simpler question for us. Um, You shouldn't be an arms dealer. You shouldn't make weapons that... Uh, make war and kill people, according to the Buddha. So uh, it's not that if you're a Unitarian Universalist, you can't invest in stocks with an arms company, although that's another question for another day. But um, if you're a Buddhist, you can't. So you can't do it and be a good Buddhist uh, or pursue happiness and freedom the way a Buddhist was. Would, sorry. So if you look with your conscience at your work, you ask yourself, does this work do harm to myself or others? And really, I think most kinds of work, they do a little harm to us. And sometimes they do a little harm to others. And sometimes it's complicated. But you have a dialogue with your conscience about it. And so, uh, also have to say, given the choice, many, many people would not do the work that they do. They would do something different or they would be retired or on vacation or not do the work that they do at all. Um, Just because you need a vacation doesn't mean you're not in your right livelihood. But sometimes if your work is oppressing you or doing damage to your family or other people, you might want to think about noticing the lack of happiness or the unhappiness caused by your work. We have to work in our capitalist culture. 
we work because we need money to buy diapers and we need money to fill up the car with gas and we need money for security and for the rent or the mortgage. We need to pay for our lives with the energy of our life's coin. So if we have our energy, we ask ourselves, am I paying out the daily coin of my life for something that is good? Am I basically getting back something good from the energy that I'm spending on the work that I'm doing? And sometimes you have to take a very long view. Like if you have tiny children, sometimes you think during the day, this is not worth it, this is too hard, I would not do this again. But then later on, when they're in their 20s or in their 30s, you might think, oh, that was wonderful. Every single moment of it was wonderful. You have the luxury to think that since they're all grown up. So you take the long view and you say, is this a good life that I'm buying for the energy that I'm laying out? So if we see it as a good trade, we are in our right livelihood. Also, right livelihood means making time for our families and our bodies and our community and our joy. And if your work is stealing your joy, you may need to think about your work differently or you may need to do different work. I have a friend who's a physician. And a lot of their colleagues are just grimly doing the job in order to make enough money to retire early. My friend dips in every now and then to the Yale happiness course. And the Yale happiness course says, think about your job differently. Think about it as helping. Helping. And he said, when I think about my work as helping people, it makes me happy. And I don't think about making a lot of money so I can retire early. I think about who am I going to help next? How am I going to help this next person? So he's thinking about his job differently and he's happier than a lot of his colleagues. Some workplaces are toxic. There's a lot of infighting and there's politics and there's struggles over power. And sometimes we can be a presence in a job situation like that just by being a centered, spiritual person who does not participate in the toxicity, but instead who smooths over the raggedy hearts of the people with whom they're working as much as you can by being a compassionate presence there. Then there's this question, overwork. Most jobs, including volunteer jobs, encourage overwork. So all the boundaries have to be inside you. Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk and a writer, says this. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to violence. More than that, it is cooperation in violence. The frenzy of the activist neutralizes her work for peace. 
It destroys his inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of her own work because it kills the root of the inner wisdom which makes the work fruitful. So I'm going to ask you this. I've asked you to do this before. I'm trying to do it myself, but I'm not having much success, but I'm going to keep trying. Pick three things. Pick three things. There are so many good causes, and there are so many outrages happening. There are so many things that just can overwhelm us so that we can't even move. Pick three things that you're going to work on and write letters about and be outraged about. And God bless you. If there are four or five things, just think about those other two things. Somebody else is having that as one of their top three things. Somebody else is going to be writing letters about that. I don't have to be on the front line of every single issue that there is. Now, we Unitarian Universalists are bad to be on the front lines of every single issue that there is. And it's good. Too. We're good to be on the front lines of every single issue, but you as an individual do not have to be on the front lines of more than three. So just pick three. This pandemic has brought new perspectives to our sense of work. Our whole, the rhythm of our work has changed. And we don't go as many places anymore and we don't see as many people anymore and we do a lot of our work alone now and a lot of us are reconsidering how we want to work we hadn't even thought about it before because we didn't have time to think about it before Arundhati Roy is a wonderful Indian writer who said we can maybe make this pandemic a portal to a new reality we can go through the portal of this pandemic and intentionally create as much of our reality as we can in terms of our work life both work for pay work at home volunteer work all of that how do we want to shape it with intention Now let there be an offering taken and gratefully received to support the mission of this congregation, the life-saving mission of this congregation. We appreciate your generosity. We are uh, looking in the mail for uh, checks that might come in. If you want to write a check to us, it will get to us. If you want to donate through our website, you will find the link in the comments. If you are a member of a small church that is struggling during this time, as we are all struggling, but if they are close to death, please do send your contribution to them instead because we want us all to be strong on the other side of this. Now please join me, if you wish, in saying our words for extinguishing our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. 
and I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.